In the TIPBS podcast, you get great ideas and practical advice for educators. You can get more invaluable insights and free resources by subscribing to the TIPBS monthly newsletter. Visit www.tipbs.com and register your email address. Welcome to Trauma-Informed Support. I'm your host, Dr. Kay Eyre. What do you do when your students don't trust you? For children who have experienced abuse and neglect, forming trusting attachments to adults and peers can be a challenge. In an effort to not be abused or taken advantage of again, these children develop coping strategies that take the form of attachment disorders and inability to form meaningful relationships. So how do you teach these children? Today we speak with Nicola Marshall. Nicola is an educator and the founder of the Brave Hearts Education. Trained and certified as a life coach, Nicola has spent five years helping others in all walks of life. In May 2008, her life changed when she adopted a sibling group of three. This led her into the world of attachment and trauma with a bang. Living with the realities of children who have experienced trauma has led her to study theories and strategies to help such children. Nicola has authored several books and has established her consulting agency, Brave Heart Education, in West Midlands in the United Kingdom. Nicola will be interviewed by my colleague, Dr. Gavin Krishnamurthy. I hope you find the interview useful. Okay, hi everyone. Welcome to the podcast. We have uh, Nicola Marshall here today. Hi Nicola, it's great to have you here. Hi there, it's really good to be here. Excellent. So we might just jump right into it. Um, I I wondered if you could uh, tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you to the work that you kind of do at the moment. Okay, Um, well my background in terms of work um, has always kind of been in the field of Uh, People development, I guess, management. I've always been interested in what makes people tick, um, you know, different people's behavior, different people's learning styles, those kind of things. Um, But not really around children, more around just general uh, adults. Um, Until 10 years ago when my husband and I adopted three children. Uh, So they're a sibling group. They've always been together. They were four, five and seven when they came to live with us. Um, So that kind of brought me into this world of trauma with a bang, as you can imagine. Um, They've got varying degrees of attachment difficulties. Um, And really, I would say that totally changed my life. It's changed my friendships. It's changed, you know, my social activities. And it's changed my work incredibly. Mm. So I then started to learn more about what it actually means. You know, what's different about our children, if anything, what's the impact of their early trauma and their early experiences Um, and along that journey it's kind of moved more into training schools because that was the area that um, a lot of parents were getting adoptive parents with their children um, was education just how difficult it is for lots of them to settle in education Uh, there's lots of misunderstanding around their needs Um, so 
when when I um, when we first had our children, I was made redundant from the company I was working with at the mm -hmm. time. Um, so, which was fine to be honest, because I didn't want to go back full time. Um, so I then started my own business, coaching at the time, life coaching, um, and then it's kind of evolved into training, coaching, writing, speak, lots of different areas, yeah. uh, and mainly all around trauma now, really. Yeah, wow, yeah. that's incredible. You've had a lived experience of it all, really, firsthand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Because, so from that point of view, I mean, you've got the, you know, you've got both lenses on, really, and I'm sure you've spoken to lots of people through your work. How do you explain what attachment is and, and how it affects children? What, what do you think that people kind of don't understand or get wrong um, when it comes to kids who've um, had mm. kind of really difficult experiences? Yeah. Uh, I think the difficulty is um, sometimes these some of these theories seem quite complex. Mm. Um, but what we try and do in our work is is to take these complex theories and make them simple really so for me attachment is about it's about relationship it's about uh, having your needs met in in a good enough fashion and I know that's hard to to kind of quantify what that means but as a baby you know we need to have certain needs met um, and when they're not for whatever reason and that can be any number of, of things uh, it creates this kind of difficulty in relationships as we, as we grow up. So it's, we will see children who uh, find it really hard to trust other people, other adults and other children. Um, they have shame at the core of, of, of who they are. So they find it really hard to, um, to connect with other people because they feel so bad about themselves. And they find it really hard to regulate. Mm -hmm. um, so they haven't been co-regulated by their parents, which is mm -hmm. what should happen. Uh, you know, when they cry, somebody comes and meets that need and regulates them. If they haven't had that, then when they grow up, they find it really hard to regulate. So for mm -hmm. me, those three things come together. The trust, you know, trusting that the world's a safe place and that I'm going to be okay. Um, worth, self-worth, understanding mm -hmm. that I have value in the world and, and regulate. So I can regulate my emotions. Everybody feels angry, but throwing chairs across the class classroom is not a great <laughs> way to deal with that. So... Um, it's those three things for me uh, and I think often the misunderstandings are because our children look uh, like other children like their peers they don't have a, a you know a, there's no physical sign of, of um, difficulties it's hard for people to understand that sometimes they seem to be able to control their behavior and other times they can't mm. um, and I know that that's about you know where they are in their brain at any given time um, it's about the fear response, you know, that when they're in that kind of fear part of the brain, they can't think properly, mm. they can't process things. Uh, so in our schools, lots of the sanctions uh, and reward systems that we use just make it really hard for them because they can't do that cause and effect mm. thinking process when, when they're stressed. Yeah. Um, so I think getting people to understand that they have to feel calm and they have to feel safe in order to be able to to learn and do what we're expecting them to do. Mm, yeah. yeah. I'm really curious um, to hear your experience. I, I, we've been talking to, you know, people about trauma and attachment for such a long time. And I, I know mm. for myself, you know, having that first moment of 
having a child really get quite dysregulated and upset <laughs> and you have a first-hand emotional experience of what it's like and, and, and a lot of those things fall into place. I, I wondered for you, uh, because you, you, know, you wear both those hats, if, if you ever, you know, if you had had a moment like that where, uh, you know, a lot of that kind of theory and practice kind of really came, in, came to kind of life and you had a kind of understanding of what it's actually like for this child or what it's like for you to kind of even witness a child being that upset. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really good question. It's, it's, it's a totally different thing living with a yeah. child uh, with trauma than, um, you know, working with them in a school context, for example. Um, and even for us at home, there's many times, you know, I've read lots of books, I, I know lots of theories, but doing it in practice mm. is a totally different experience because you've got your own feelings, you know, you're triggered by what's going on. Um, but there have been some time, probably during therapy actually, where there's another person in the room and something happens with one of my children and we can both kind of step back and say, hmm, did you notice that or the things they just said or the way that they're looking at you for affirmation and just it's more stark when you're in a, mm. an environment that's kind of you know like a therapy room and you're mm. just focusing on one child mm. um, their difficulties and just how sad their life mm. has been and can be at times it, you know is, is, is kind of magnified Whereas in the home environment, particularly with three, there's always lots of other things going on and it's hard to focus on, you know, what was that behaviour about just now? Um, we notice, I do lots of stepping back at the end of the day and thinking, you know, reflecting, mm, why, you know, what happened there? Did I respond in the right way? Um, and, I, and we say this to schools as well, really, that a lot of it is about being proactive and not reactive because they, the children who've experienced trauma demand a reaction from us, if you like. Um, and in schools, they really struggle with that, obviously, because they've got lots of other children, young people they've got to manage. So being more proactive, thinking about the environment, and we do the same at home. I know that if, if it's really planned and structured and there's routine, um, my children respond much better to that. Mm. Um, if it's, you know, a day when I've got up late and it's all, all over the place and the you know, dog's been sick on the carpet or whatever. It's really hard to to, to manage all of that emotion. Um, it's hard work. And I think this is a thing that people maybe don't understand about um, adopters or, or people who are living with this is it's relentless. Mm. Um, I think it's very exhausting mm. um, because we are trying to therapeutically parent, mm. not just parent, but we're also trying to, you know, build trust build their self-worth and help them to regulate and if we're trying to do that all the time as well as manage our own stuff and our partners and our friends and our parents you know it's it's just really difficult um so yeah i don't know if that even answers the question no no, i think it does and i think it's helpful for people listening because i think it normalizes some of that just Mm. the sheer emotional kind of drain that comes with uh, having a child in your class or, you know, whatever context um, yeah. and, and how, yeah. um, you know, counterintuitive a lot of this stuff is in terms of, you know, the, what the child wants from you. And as a teacher, if you haven't necessarily been exposed to a lot of it, you know, it, it can seem strange. I mean, there's, yeah. a, there's a lot of work around attachment styles and what, what that looks like in the class. So uh, what were your thoughts about that? And what have you observed about that in the class? 
yeah, I found this really, really helpful. Um, and for, for me personally with my children, but also, you know, when I'm talk, talking to school staff, um, because there's very different ways that, that, that a child might express those attachment needs. Um, and sometimes they do fall into these categories of stars. Sometimes it's, a, you know, a bit harder to do that. But I've seen it with my own children. So an avoidant attachment style um, is a style of a child who their main aim in life is to not be noticed. So they tend to be shyer, quieter, more withdrawn. My daughter's like this, very, very compliant, um, fiercely self-reliant. So she's, she's left school now. She's at college, but she left school with no, no exam results, really, because of the level of anxiety she feels, but she won't tell people. Mm-hmm. So she, she was really compliant in school. So she never was on anybody's radar really. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and they, for children like that, they become really vulnerable as they get older because they're open to any, any you know, anybody else outside of the family shows them some attention and mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're gone really, they're in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't focus very much on them because they, they are easy to manage because they're quiet. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting yeah, dilemma. Yeah. I'm just, sorry, yeah. sorry to interrupt. I was only going to say yeah. it, it's an interesting dilemma with those kids because I often find that, um, you know, they're quiet because they don't want to get into trouble or, or you know, uh, do the wrong thing and just want to fly in the radar because that feels safer. But they get ignored so that, you know, people are not helping them or tending to them emotionally. And so then there's really difficult double bind on there. Yeah, absolutely. And then they will end up, it kind of comes out in their behavior. So eventually... And with my daughter, if she keeps it in long enough, something will come out. So mm. she might steal, uh, she might lie. Um, she's got friends who self-harm quite a lot, um, you know, abscond, you know, all of those things that are kind of um, under the radar, if you like. They're not in-your-face aggression. They're, they're, they're much more kind of um, and played down, really. Uh, and I think as well in our school system, it's difficult because a lot of the rules are about... Um, appropriate behavior so keeping it all in pretending that everything's okay when it's not so um, when she has exploded at school you know that's seen as a really negative thing whereas for me as a parent I see that as a positive thing because she's actually letting it out mm. but she's not allowed to do that in school um, and I understand why but that that's you know just I think the lack of understanding that uh, just telling a child to to stick on a happy face and pretend everything's okay is not is not good for a child who is pushing it all down. Mm. They'll get um, health issues in the future. As I say, very vulnerable. Um, you know, so I think there's lots of reasons why we should encourage these children to 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 express um, and and just saying at the front of the class, look, you know, if you don't understand, come and ask me. It's not good enough because they're not going to do that. Mm. Um, hence why, you know, my daughter's had no, got no real exam results because, um, you know, the anxiety level is too high, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on the, on, on the other side of the scale is what we call an ambivalent attachment style, which is a child whose main aim in life is to be noticed. So these, everybody tends to know these. Uh, my middle son's a bit like this, so a bit louder, a bit more in your face, uh, tend to know everybody's names and dates and places. Um, in school, they've gone through all the behaviour policy, doesn't make any difference. So they're the same ones in detention, in isolation, uh, because it's all about attention. But this is a real big one for schools to understand, is it's about attention needing 
not attention seeking. Because mm. uh, when we talk about attention seeking behavior, it kind of implies that we should ignore it mm. and they'll stop. Mm. But for these children, because it's an unmet need, um, they won't stop. And mm. then it hikes up to something else. They're then cartwheeling across the carpet. You know, they do everything they possibly can mm. to be seen. Mm. Um, and I think that's a, that's a real difficult one to understand. Um, and, and this probably goes against all of our uh, our ways of thinking, really, in, in our societies, is that um, we shouldn't reward people for bad behaviour, if you like. Mm. So if they are um, cartwheeling across the carpet, and we and they're not supposed to be, um, you know, people will say, well, you've got to stop them doing that. But actually it's a really difficult one to understand that mm. there's an unmet need underneath there mm. uh, and all behavior communicates something, doesn't mm. it? So that is communicating that actually there's, mm. there's anxiety. Um, Just curious yeah. Nicola, um, about how um, you advocated for him. Cause, uh, cause I can imagine a lot of teachers saying, you know, here's a boy who, who seems to be living at this point in quite a loving kind of family. And I'm sure he gets a lot of this, you know, this attention that he needs at home. Um, are we just making excuses? Is he just being naughty? How did you find yourself explaining that to teachers? Um, it is really hard. I mean, fortunately for him, he wasn't too difficult at school. Mm. Mm. Um, but I know many, obviously we're talking, talking with schools where they have been really uh, difficult. A friend of mine, her daughter's particularly like this, and we would say to that school, just look look at the patterns of behaviour, um, and try and think about where is this coming from. So if if uh, if there's a certain teacher, so this was in secondary school where you know here there's lots of of different teachers. Um, so if it's a particular teacher that they're you know being um naughty in which i don't like that word but you know um in in their class then it's looking at you know what is it about that that um teacher that that's that's causing that um i think we've tried to with schools we've tried to get them to see that if you give a child like that attention before they're demanding it then it often alleviates some of that so there's no point if they're you know sticking their hand up all the time just ignoring them hmm. you have to acknowledge them and say yep i've seen your hand but i want somebody else to answer the question um and i think with lots of schools with any of these children we we've just said just try it you know mm. just try a different mm. approach um and see how it works and actually mm. you know building on relationship with a child who's who who needs attention is really really important so keep you know they the first person that you see when you come in the classroom give them eye contact say their name ask them how the weekend was remember things about them you know all of those relationship things for that child it's much more important um than maybe for an avoidant child for mm. them it's it's more about you know you keeping your word and doing things that you say you're going to do and and coming alongside them um I mean, we found that with most schools, just them understanding where those behaviours come from has made a huge difference to mm. understand that, you know, that bad behaviour, what we call bad behaviour, is actually um, them communicating a need. Mm. 
Mm. You know, the attention needing thing, mm. I think, um, you know, re- really helps in that. Yeah. So, I mean, what are your thoughts about, um, it sounds as though a lot of this comes down to how the child trusts the teacher and, and yeah. how safe they feel. What is your sense of that? And some teachers struggle with this because when they try to do the right thing, they try to be nice, they often get the big pushback because the kids don't trust them and it's not safe just yet. What is your kind of tips around teachers being able to do that, Nicola? Mm. Uh, yeah, it's a good question. I think it's it's very different depending on the age of the child. Um, with early years and with young children, I think it is about being nurturing in your approach. Um, it, it's about we tend to talk about a metal box with velvet lining. So it's there's real strong boundaries. We're not just saying do whatever you want. That there's routine, there's boundaries, but within that, there's nurture, there's compassion, there's empathy, mm-hmm. um, there's fun you know, which there's sometimes in some schools, there's not a lot of that. Um, but understanding that for that child, you know, they, they live such an intense life. They may still be in that intense environment at home and to come into school and feel that they can have fun and that they can laugh and, you know, it's okay to be themselves is really, really important. Um, so for, for me, a lot of it is about stepping back and thinking about relationships. So, um, you know, how, how would you like to be spoken to, I guess? Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, this, um, the stern voices, the, you know, disapproving looks, the shouting, obviously, is mm-hmm. not going to create a safe space. Mm-hmm. Um, with older children, I think it gets a little bit trickier um, because we tend to, it, it's more about banter, really. It's more about, mm-hmm. um, you know, that kind of, fun kind of um relationship where you might have a different handshake to one person to another or the way that you treat them is 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 different um but again for me it's about trying to understand why they're doing what they do and when we do this arbitrary um you know you're not allowed to talk in class that's it um i remember the the first week that my middle son went to high school um, and, and teachers tend to be very hard in the first week, you know, to, to lay down the law. But for children who are terrified of coming into school, it, mm. it just, you know, just creates more anxiety. So I remember him coming back. He had his first detention, uh, which he was mortified by it. And, and the reason he got it was um, there was a, a ruler on the floor and he said to somebody else, is that your ruler? And the teacher said, if you talk again, you'll be in detention. So he said, is that your ruler <laughs> again? Um, and so he got detention, but it's just pointless, you know, because mm. it's, you're terrifying a child who's already terrified. Um, mm. You're not going to get a good result from it, really. Yeah. And, and I think Kay has this really nice saying. Um, she says, um, you know, there's nothing you can do that is more frightening than what this child's already seen. And <laughs> I always remember that. And it's, it's just a useful thing to remember, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 That's true. Um, I really love the analogy of the metal box with the velvet lining. I'm going to remember that one. What, what do you see as the biggest barriers in school to being able to find that balance where you're not going down the path of lots of punishment, but you can yeah. be nurturing with some of these children? Um, I, th- I think the biggest barrier for me, and it's not just in 
school it's actually in society so in parenting in the way that we do everything is that everything seems to be about behavior modification so it's it's kind of puppy training so if we can get this child to sit still then we'll give them a tree and then that you know they'll sit still again because we've given them a tree um but that doesn't work with children like this and i actually think that's not a great way for all children mm. um um, to, uh, schools will say, well, I can't spend all my time on this one child. Mm-hmm. Um, so they want a program. They want something that will mm-hmm. um, take the stress of that child away. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they do. I mean, most every educator I've met cares about the child very mm-hmm. much. Uh, they go over and above to try and, and, and help them. Um, but I don't think it's about that. They, 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 kind of imply that it's going to take me more time to have to adapt things for this child but actually if we could look at all of our children in this way if we had an approach that was more about emotional literacy it was more about you know getting to what's underneath their their behavior uh, relationship looking at you know their personality if, if we had a, a wider approach to the way that we educate mm. it in my mind, it wouldn't be um, as big a deal as people think it is in terms mm. of having to, I need more staff to do that. And, uh, mm. you know, the funding, mm. we get those kind of comments a lot about, you know, funding and not having mm. enough people, not having the resources to do all that. Mm. Um, but I do think, I mean, I'm at the moment, I'm thinking of a, a kind of blog um, post that I'm going to write, which is about one size actually can fit all. Because sometimes we say one size doesn't fit all, which I, and I've said that a lot in terms of you can't treat a child with trauma the same way as you treat a child without. But actually, if we had a more um, emotionally intelligent approach to children across the board, it could, that one size could fit all. Because if we can get it right for our most vulnerable children, then it's going to be right for our other children. Because mm. I often hear people say, well, you know, that our reward system and our sanctions, it works for uh, a child who's well behaved. But I know that if you took that, you know, here we have a lot of traffic light systems on the ward, you have the same, yeah. um, you know, the red, amber, green, and everybody starts in green and then they get moved yeah. up and down. Real, yeah. real shame, shame riddled, really. Um, but I was in a school the other day where they were talking about this and, and actually they said, you know, for the well-behaved children, um, we think it works, but actually if you took it off the board, they'd still be well-behaved. Yeah. <laughs> that's not the thing that's making them well-behaved. It's their, you know, it's their sense of who they are and their value and their, and their morals and, and all of that. Yeah. Um, what it is doing to our vulnerable children is it's creating more shame and it's yeah. making them uh, terrified to come into school and it's, you know, making their behavior worse and all that. So actually it's detrimental across the board um so yeah i think that that's our biggest barrier is trying to understand that um we've got to get back to basics instead of just putting on another program or let's let's do this approach so Mm. at the moment some schools are doing conscious discipline Mm. uh come across that american um which is fine and it sounds you know like it's good that the principles are good but again it's when schools hear something like that the staff, they're often like, oh, another program. We've got mm. to learn a whole new thing. Mm. And, mm. 
not actually to me it's about getting back to basics of relationship yeah. you know do you do do we actually know our children in our classrooms yeah. do we know in secondary particularly in high school mm. most of the teachers don't know my children at mm. all mm. my children don't know their names you know so you like there's no relationship so how on earth are they going to know that talking about domestic violence in the drama lesson is going to trigger my my daughter you know um so to me it's much more basic than what we seem to be trying to do Absolutely. And I think working in an attachment sensitive way, in a trauma informed way or whatever you want to call it, I, I think it's not even just about the children. It's really about how we treat the school community, isn't it? It's about how the yeah. principal interacts with the teachers, how the teachers interact yeah. with each other. And, and, yeah. it, and it's about, I think, recognizing that it's less about kind of compliance and more about um, people reacting to the stressful environments that they've been put in um, yeah. and that we need to kind of reach out and um, kind of support everybody really um, yeah. with the sort of compassion Definitely. that the kids deserve as well. Definitely. It's one of the things that we've noticed a lot uh, mm. in this country is there's, mm. there's very little support for uh, staff, for education mm. staff. If you were, you know, counsellor or a psychologist, you get supervision, you get clinical supervision. You don't in schools. Mm. There isn't a place for them to go and talk about really stressful situations that they mm. have with the children that they're working with mm. um, in a non-judgmental kind of, you know, fashion that's not about assessment. So they can't go mm. to their boss and say, mm. you know, I'm really struggling with this child. I really don't like them. You know, they can, that's going to affect their job. Um so we're working on a program at the moment to try and bring more kind of coaching, more more spaces of supervision, whether that's in a group or whether that's one-to-one, um, because we don't do it. it mm. It's not really um, general practice here. Mm. Mm. Um, so, and, and some of the staff are working with really challenging children on a daily basis being, you know, hit and, and, and spat out and sworn at. And, you know, you think that's, that's really difficult and they're taking mm. that home with them that's affecting their mental health um you know so yeah i think you're absolutely right it's, yeah. it's that it's culture isn't it it's changing mm. the whole culture mm. in mm. in a workplace in a in a mm. school mm. where the staff the senior leaders all of the staff the lunchtime supervisors you know everybody the children and the parents who come in are, are feeling that this is a safe and a, and, mm. a, and a calm place to be really yeah, yeah. I'm really curious about um, your work around, you know, providing coaching and supervision and things mm. like that. Do you have any kind of examples or, or even kind of have a way of explaining how teachers are actually finding that useful, Nicola? Well, um, I don't as such because we've yeah. only just started. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I it, in my talking to them about this area, um, I I I I really believe that it would be very useful um, because they they're not getting it anywhere. Mm. Um, we've started it with a, a couple of people, but it's we haven't really started it in earnest. Um, so yeah, I'm looking at and and again, it's funding. It's getting yeah. the schools to understand that this is something worth putting some investment in um, mm-hmm. because it, you know, it will keep your staff in the school. It will help the children, you know, all, all of those reasons. 
Um, so no, I can't really. Yeah, yeah that's all right. But I think a lot of this is about kind of pushing to do things differently and being yeah. flexible and things like that. And you've you've written a little bit about you know using music and arts and things like that to support kids mm-hmm. with attachment difficulties. Could you speak to that a little bit, Nicola, um, and how that um, works? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I have written a bit um, about music, about drama. Um, I've really seen with my own children that the arts, any kind of um, expression of, 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 you know, how they feel is really good. My daughter writes um, songs uh, that, she, you know, they're her lyrics. I'm not sure they're ever going to be out there in the, in the charts, but um, they're, they're really expressive and, and, and she doesn't express herself usually. Um, so it's a really good way of her expressing herself we've seen lots of children use music in terms of regulating um so if they come into a classroom and they're really stressed you know whether that's one child on their own and they're listening to music in in the headphones or whether it's the whole class you know doing the whole kind of mindfulness type um approach um yeah and i and i just think it instinctively any of those kind of arts that that are touching the different parts of our brain mm. um are going to help really because mm. for a, lo- a lot of these children the the kind of academic part of the brain if you like um finds it really hard to articulate so mm. being able to express how they're feeling they're not going to necessarily do that in words mm. but they might be able to do that in a picture or in a you know or, or in music or something mm. like that um, all of my children really have done drama, uh, have done music to some extent, sports they do a lot of. Animal therapy is something that we have seen works really well here as well. Um, you know, horse horse therapy. We have some schools where they'll bring dogs in mm. uh, and just that kind of regulation of being around. They're very docile dogs. They don't do an awful lot. Um, but being around, you know, that animals and that that kind of environment really helps um the only problem i have or the the challenge in these areas is for uh the the teachers of music and drama to understand that um a lot of the subjects that they do are going to trigger things particularly drama so we've had a lot of conversations with the school that my children are at on the subjects that they do uh, as I kind of mentioned earlier about domestic violence, if you're doing a whole term on domestic violence, you know, you're going to expect that that's going to trigger an awful lot for a child. Um, and and the response I've got often has been, well, you know, children need to know about these things. And for the majority of children in the class, they probably don't know anything about it. Mm. But for those who've lived it, it's very different. Mm. And I'm not sure that schools are prepared to be having therapy sessions in their drama class you know so so if you're going to do it that's fine but you you know i need to know first mm. to, to start with we need to prepare our children for that and also you need to be prepared that she may be coming out crying every lesson um mm. somebody needs to manage that that process with her um so yeah i think all those things are, are great and very therapeutic um mm. as long as they're done in a in a way that people understand that you're going to be managing some, you know, 
some fallout of that really and, and, and processing it with them, helping them to process things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think I, I was recently listening to someone who was talking about triggers who said, you know, talking about something that's triggering is akin to putting a big novel in front of a child who's got dyslexia and expecting them to read it. And I thought yeah. that was quite a nice way to explain it. Um, and, and it's just that awareness about its impact on them really, isn't it? That, um, is Absolutely. Yeah. Well, she was, my daughter was expected to, in the drama, course which was her for her GCSE so for her final results mm. she was expected to act the part of um, a girl who was part of a, a sibling group of three which is exactly her experience whose mom abandoned them oh, by um, yeah by leaving a note in the cereal packet one day and she 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 leaves so it's about these three teenagers trying to to cope with that um, so you can't expect her to be able to to give her best for her exam in a subject that's going to be so triggering. Mm, She's just not going to be able to do it. Yeah, that's incredibly hard. Yeah, it sounds yeah. like your daughter has moved on from school and you've done a lot of work with adults as well. How, how do you see this stuff playing out into adulthood? Um, we get a lot of teachers, you know, one of the messages we really push is how important teachers are in terms of, uh, yeah. You know, particularly for kids who continue to live in homes where there's a lot of threat in terms of providing them a kind of template and role model for healthy relationships. How, how do you yeah. see it play out into adulthood? Yeah, this is a really interesting area and it's something that I'm, I'm working through myself as my children get older. So my daughter's 17. Uh, I also do quite a lot of work with, with youth groups where, you know, mm. they're, they're older and going into kind of adulthood. Um, and it's a really interesting question, isn't it? I, I, I'm, I'm torn between, well, I'm not torn, but I'm, 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 I'm trying to work through when is the cutoff point mm. and is there a cutoff point for when we say, right, this person is now an adult and they now cannot keep talking about their past mm. and blaming their past for their behaviour. When do they take responsibility because I know many adults in their 50s, 60s who cannot take responsibility for their mm. life and, you know, are still impacted greatly by what happened in their early experiences. So in our education system, we expect a child, certainly over here when they're 16, to be perfectly reasonable enough to get themselves to college and to self-study mm. and to have good relationships and, you know, not, not to get in trouble with the police. When they're 18, you know, they're an adult. Surely they can get a job and all the rest of it. Um, but I know from the experience with my own daughter, well, to start with, she's not uh, emotionally the same age as she is chronologically. Mm -hmm. So she may be 17 and she may have to go to college because that's what we have to do here. She's not ready for that. Mm -hmm. um, and she's certainly not ready to be living on her own and, and you know, making those decisions. Um, but I, I think for me, you cannot... Um, the, the cutoff point, I guess, is, is, is different for every person. And I think mm -hmm. it's when that person um, has dealt with some of the stuff in their past. Um, it's all a process and a journey. So I'm not saying that anybody has to be perfect, but to be able to work through some of those things um, where you're in a position where you can take responsibility. Um, so I'll give you a, an example from my own experience. Um, some stuff that happened for me in my childhood. I remember going through some counselling when I was in my mid-twenties, I guess. And the people who were counselling me said, look, how you've responded in your relationships up to now 
is not your fault because mm. you didn't know it was a pattern of behavior. Now you know, now you're aware in any future relationships that, you know, you have more responsibility in that because you now know. Mm. And when I think about my children who, uh, it's a bit more complicated because them knowing something is a bit more difficult. Um, but my daughter, for example, she now is fully aware of her, her attachment needs. We talk a lot about brain development. She knows about her, her avoidance. So she, she takes responsibility for that more, where she'll come to me and say, I need to talk to you about something. Um, not all the time, but mm -hmm. she's, she's grown, particularly over the last year since she's left school, um, to a point where I think she'll be able to, at some point, and I don't know when that is, take mm. full responsibility for, for, for her actions, for what mm. she does. Mm. Um, so for me, a lot of it, and when you talk about teachers and, and anybody who works with a child like this, we have the same in adoption, uh, is for the adult to be really aware of their own attachment history, mm. to be self-aware as much as you can be, to be reflective, to think, why is that triggering me so much and it's not triggering my, my husband, for example. Um, so understanding our own attachment style, uh, our own history, because we're all on that attachment spectrum. Mm. Um, I think that's really important. I've seen that with, with schools as well, you know, is to understand more more about if they change as an adult what impact does it have on the child instead of always concentrating on the child changing mm -hmm. but actually being able to step back and say well actually what was my part in this mm -hmm. you know i was a bit too stern there i you know whatever it might be um so yeah i, I think it's a really difficult one i think it's um mm -hmm. so somebody i heard somebody speak a while ago um it was a lady who'd been through care herself and she's now in her 40s and she said, really, what we're doing is creating a space for recovery. Hmm. So we're not fixing them. Hmm. I'm not trying to fix my children. I'm just trying to create a space where hmm. they can recover. So I'm trying not to hinder their recovery. I'm trying to enhance it. Um, and I know that that's going to take years. So some of that won't work their own children and all of those, hmm. you know, um, whatever might come in the future. Yeah. yeah, so for me, I think it's that. It's about creating that, that space and trying to help people to be self-aware. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think what's lovely about that story is that your uh, it feels like your daughter has the permission to, uh, to come back and to go out and then to come back, this idea of kind of that secure base with you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just kind of what we want with a lot of these kids, isn't it? That we still have that safety net because we know they're not quite ready yet, but it's not yeah. about just wrapping them up in cotton wool and overprotecting them. It's about still being there uh, for them to know that they can come back. Um, yeah. That way they yeah. feel less alone. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, could you say just a couple more things just about that piece about being self-aware and, and uh, you know, I know for a lot of teachers, the way they make sense of this is, you know, it's almost, um, you know, you don't have to ever prompt it. The first thing they say is, well, this wasn't how <laughs> I, this wasn't how it was when I went to school or this isn't how we were raised or anything like yes. that. Yes. When yes. you mean self-aware, what do you think that, that actually means for teachers when they're actually, you know, um, having a tough time with a student? Yeah. 
Um, I think understand, well, I guess in the context of school, they first need to understand or, or appreciate that their uh, values, ways of thinking, approaches are very different to a child who's had a very different background. Um, and, and we do that through a number of different exercises, getting them to understand that, you know, if those building blocks in, in, in an early child's development aren't there, um, then their normal is not the same as your normal. So, mm. uh, you know, we think oh, it's, it's inappropriate to swear at people, but for them it might be very appropriate to swear mm. at people. You know, we think that pushing people out of the way is wrong, but for them in their environment that might have been, you know, the norm. So I think getting them to understand that... Um, that things are different for, for, for another child. Um, again, some, somebody else I heard speak a while ago, a, another lady who'd been through the care system mm -hmm. talked about maps. So we've all got these maps of how the world works. And she didn't know that her map was any different to anybody else until she came into contact with a very good foster carer who showed her that, that there was a different map. There's a different way to live. Um, and I think often I've heard from teachers or from any adult with a child like this, um, you know, why can't they just do what we tell them to do? Or, you know, that's not how I would have done it. And there's just no respect mm. for people. And I think it's just getting them to understand that that's, that's about our values and understanding that they're very different to theirs mm. and accepting that theirs are different. And I guess the difficulty is for people to accept that, um, that a child uh, how do I say this that I, I think what we tend to say is well that's the way it should be mm. yeah um and yes that maybe that is the way it should be in terms of we don't all swear at each other but that's not the way it is for that mm. child mm. um so what what I try to do sometimes people say look you know uh, we had a discussion actually this week in a school about swearing. So somebody had said that um, this is in very early years. So this child um, um, says how he feels in a way that's, you know, might not be appropriate. So he talks about being pissed off. Um, and that for me is okay because I, that word doesn't really bother me, but for some other people, it obviously does. And in the school context, the, the senior leaders who were there were like, Oh, you know, we can't respond in the same way. Whereas we were talking about, you know, how, how we have to, you know, mirror their, their mm. effects. So if a child is really distressed, then we would talk in the same kind of way mm. uh, and we would use similar language. But of course we're not saying you swear at them. Um, but I think it's just, for me, it's challenging our own understanding and our own values and thinking, what is it about swearing that's so offensive to me? What is it about spitting? What is it about sexualized behavior? We all have different elements or, uh, of what a child might do that, that, you know, that we get offended by. Um, mm. But that's generally more about our upbringing, isn't mm. it? And, and our understanding. What I do hear often and, and, I totally understand this is, um, well, they wouldn't be allowed to do that out in the world. They won't be allowed to, mm. you know, swear at people on the street. They won't be allowed to punch people, which obviously it, it is true. But I think it's just understanding that um, sometimes it's about our approach to them. Mm. So all behavior communicates something. Mm. So if I react to 
somebody swearing at me, um, I'm not really getting to what's underneath it. You're just looking at the surface stuff. Mm. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm sure you've come across Brian Post's work. I don't know whether you, whether you know him from America. Yeah. He talks about, um, you know, shutting down the pathways of expression. So if you stop them from rolling their eyes and tutting and, you know, and we say, oh, don't roll your eyes at me and, mm. you know, who do you think you're talking to? Then it goes down into feelings and eventually it comes out in behavior. Mm. And the only mm. way we can stop the behavior is by allowing them to express. Mm. Um, mm. And that's difficult in school. I understand that. Um, but if we don't allow them to express or help them to find more appropriate ways to express. Um, so anger is probably the one, you know, the most difficult one and the one that's kind of, you know, out there is, is helping them to find healthy mm. ways of expressing that anger yeah. instead of just saying it's wrong to throw a chair. Mm. Well, yeah. Mm. And most, you know, the child, the child probably knows it's wrong to throw a chair, mm. Mm. but they can't, they're not in control of that in that moment when they've, you know, dysregulated, are they? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's not, it's trying to get adults to not yeah. be offended by the behavior yeah. and to try and look underneath at what's driving the behavior yeah. Uh, and then, you know, when we can relieve that anxiety, children generally behave in a different way. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about um, your little quote before about having a space for recovery. And I wonder for educators, if it's about having a space for learning, really, and, and learning, not just academic learning, but just social and emotional learning and, and uh, you know, how much of that has to do with our own beliefs and how much of that can we flexibly, flexibly do as adults for this child because yeah. um, they're going to learn it. In a, well, they probably won't learn it out in the real world because it's all about yeah. punishment and consequences, which we know yeah. aren't yeah, the best absolutely. teachers. Yeah. Thank I you. Sorry. Yeah, I I, sorry. I was just going to say, I don't, I don't think they do get any, any time or space or even learning about mm. managing their own emotions at mm. school. Mm. I think it's all about the children. Mm. Um, and I know as a parent, you, if you can't manage your own emotions, you can't, you can't help a child. Yeah. Um, and that, that's, that's what they're missing. I think in education is understanding that, you know, we've got to manage our own stuff before we can mm. help them. Yeah. Mm. Nicola, thank you so much. Um, thank you so much yeah. for sharing things from your personal life and, and from your training experience. Um, what are you working on at the moment? What are you curious about? Um, uh, at this stage um yeah well um the thing i've just talked about with with the self-care that you know the that space for adults to work through um i'm working on that um also we are kind of going a little bit more into um oh, something's popped up on my computer we're going a, a little bit more into uh teenage areas because over here there's not a lot of um there's not a lot of help certainly for parents adoptive parents um for teenagers uh there tends to be a lot of early intervention which i un totally understand why that is um but there's still a lot of people out there who mm. are struggling with their teenagers mm. and most of the adoption breakdowns happen in teenage years um uh, and with schools as well of course once they get to secondary it's really gets much more difficult um so personally i'm i'm looking at different ways of understanding more about that myself so i've started doing a bit of mentoring 
with some young people um, and I'm doing a, a counselling course for teenagers around the arts mm. uh, later on in the year. Um, as a business, yeah, it's more about that coaching, the coaching kind of package. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, and we tend to, to focus more on trying to create a community. So what mm. what what's happened a lot over here over the last few years is more schools are, are attachment aware but for me, it's more about being attachment focused. So it's not just being aware of it and having a, you know, a three hour training, but it's how do we change culture? Mm. So we're working with um, the, the local authority in, in North Wales to look at um, piloting a, a program with a few schools where we can actually embed the learning to mm. so really go into their behavior policies, you know, teaching emotional literacy to all the staff, not just pastoral staff mm. um, you know finding ways that we can actually change a culture which mm. I, I think is quite huge really um yeah so a few things i'm yeah. also writing a, i'm also looking at writing a, a, another book at the moment which is based on um which is more like a novel but it's based on a child at school so it's a child in uh, a difficult home environment so it's what school feels like from his perspective um, so I'm working on that at the moment as well. That sounds excellent. You've got a lot going on yeah. <laughs> at the moment. Um, thank you, Nicola. Was there any like websites or resources that people can kind of go to to kind of get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. They can go to our website, www.bravehearteducation.co.uk. We have some free resources there, some eBooks for schools and for parents. Um, we also have an online course in attachment uh, and, and blogs. We do regular blogs. There's lots of content on there uh, if people want to, to do that. We also have a Facebook page, Braveheart Education, and we have Braveheart Parents um, page, which is adopters, foster carers, any parents who are interested in, in this area. Um, so, yeah, we, the more the merrier. We'd love to uh, see people on there. Excellent. And we'll put up those links on um, yeah. the notes as well. Thank you so much, Nicola. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Thank, Thank you. you. I've really enjoyed it too. Thank you. All right. Take care. All right. You too. That was our interview with Nicola Marshall. Thank you to Nicola for sharing her experience with us. To access the resources and websites discussed in the interview, check out the show notes by visiting www tipbs.com. If you're enjoying listening to our podcast, please rate and review it on iTunes. Your ratings make all the difference. Thank you for listening. See you next time.